me begin by speaking to the children uh, just now. So boys and girls, holidays. What do you think about holidays? Yes, thumbs up. I love it. Holidays are amazing, aren't they boys and girls? Holidays are uh, amazing. When I was about six or seven years old, I think I was, uh, I went on what was my first proper family holiday. And what happened before we went on the holiday was that my dad made me all of these big promises about the holiday. So my dad would say to me, see when we go on holiday, Andy, we're going to go swimming together and we're going to play tennis together and we're going to play football together, all of these promises. So listen, for the whole of the previous year, can you imagine what I was like? I was looking forward to this holiday and it's all I was thinking about for week in, week out. I was thinking about all these different things. And then what happened? The holiday arrived. And let me tell you this, boys and girls, the holiday was even better than I had possibly imagined it could be. Do you know why? Not only did all of those promises come true, but they came true at the very same time. That's what's so amazing about it. I would wake up and I would go swimming in the morning. Then I would play tennis in the afternoon. Then I'd play football at night. All of these promises coming true and coming true at the very same time. What are holidays like? Holidays are amazing, aren't they? Okay. Now, boys and girls, why am I telling you that story? Well, I want you to understand that that is kind of similar to the portion of Scripture that we have read together. See, what's the first part of the Bible called? The Old Testament, isn't it? And in the Old Testament, God the Father had made an awful lot of promises and promises to his people. What what did he promise? He didn't promise anything about swimming or tennis, did he? What did he promise? He promised about a saviour that was to come. And those people who received the promise, they had to wait for it. Remember, I was waiting weeks and weeks for the promises. These people had to wait years and years and years, centuries for promises. But listen, I wonder if you see what happens in this portion of scripture today. Not only do so many of the promises come true, in this portion of scripture, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, so many of these promises come true at the very same time. All of these promises coming true at once. So not only are holidays amazing, this portion of God's word, it is also amazing. And friends, for everyone here, let me try and explain what I think we'll see here uh, this morning in God's Word. First of all, I think in Mark chapter 11, we're going to see and learn something about Jesus' person. I think we're going to learn in these verses something about his identity, something about who this Jesus is. Then secondly, I think we're going to learn something about Jesus' purpose. So in Mark chapter 11, we're going to learn something about what it is that he has come into the world to do. Jesus' person, Jesus' purpose. And then thirdly this morning, God willing. Well, thirdly, we're just going to ask what I think is a critical, crucial question of this text. Jesus' person, Jesus' purpose. And then we're going to ask a fundamental question of Mark chapter 11. So, with these things sort of laid out before us, I would encourage you, if you don't already, to to have uh, 
Mark chapter 11 open there in front of you, this short section of scripture. Let's think about that, that first point that we've mentioned. Remember what it was? We learn here a lesson about Jesus' person, about just who he is. Okay, if, if you're not visiting, if you've been here uh, as part of this sermon series, I am hoping this morning that immediately when you read this portion of scripture, you see that it is a very, very critical and crucial moment in Mark's gospel. Do you? What's been, what's been happening over the last few chapters? We've been traveling with Jesus towards Jerusalem, haven't we? And we've been going across country. We've been going into Jericho and out of Jericho. All this traveling towards And what happens this morning? What happens in Mark chapter 11? At long, long last, we enter into the holy city. At long last, we're here. We're actually today entering in with Jesus into the capital city, uh, Jerusalem. But um, we're not quite there yet are we at the beginning of Mark's gospel? See, most of you in the the church uh, here just now, at some time or other, you will have driven into London from the north. A lot of you will have done that in the past. And if you've done that, which I'm sure most of you have, you know what it's like. So you're driving down the M1, usually in the rain, and uh, just before, you're driving south in the M1, and just before... London appears on your horizon. You remember what happens? You're driving south in the car and you hit the last stop on the road. You're driving down the M1 and you see the sign that says Gateway to London Services. You know, the last stop before you hit the big city. Well, I'm, I'm hoping you see that that's what happens in Mark chapter 11, isn't it? Because look what we're told in verse 1 here. Do you see it? We're told that Jesus and the crowd, they're not actually in Jerusalem yet. They've stopped a village called Bethany. Now, this is a place that was kind of commonly regarded as the last stop. You know, the gateway to Jerusalem services. You know, the last stop before you get to to the big city. So they've stopped there, and that's fine, that's great. But what I want to draw your attention to is the geographical detail that Mark adds to this. Now have a look at verse 1. He says, well, yeah, they've stopped at Bethphage, they've stopped at Bethany. What else does he say? They have stopped at the Mount of Olives. Why does he say this? Because he he doesn't need to. He could just leave it and say that they're at Bethany. Uh, He's never mentioned the Mount of Olives anywhere else in the gospel. Why does he do that? Why does he mention the Mount of Olives? Well, what I think we have to appreciate is that in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives was a critical, seen as a really critical location for the future working of God. It's significant in the Old Testament. Like in the book of Zechariah and in the book of uh, Ezekiel, this sort of otherwise inconsequential hill, the Mount of Olives, in those books it's seen as being of great significance for the coming glory of God. The Mount of Olives seen as being significant for the very coming of the Messiah himself. So I'm asking you, do you see what Mark is doing here? In giving you this geographical marker, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look where Jesus is. 
He's saying this man has paused. This man is about to work on the very Mount of Olives itself. He's saying to you this morning that Jesus is no ordinary man. So he's on the Mount of Olives and and, and we see that. But what is it that he does as he pauses on this significant location? I'll tell you what, let's do it together, shall we? Let's read and let's see. Look at the end of verse 1. What does Jesus do? Jesus sent uh, two of his disciples and said to them, Okay, go into the village in front of you. So it's Bethany. Go into Bethany. Immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And I'm guessing, (laughs) I'm guessing most of us know the story, you know. You know that the two disciples do exactly as Jesus commands. And what do they find? They find things exactly as Jesus has predicted they would. Now, this is what I think happens when you and I read this story of God's word. We focus on what we view to be a miracle of foresight by Jesus, don't we? Like We focus on the fact that, wow, Jesus knew exactly what these two men were going to find. He knew all about this colt, this donkey. We focus on that. And we take our eyes off the actual details of the instruction that Jesus gives these men. And I'm saying to you, that's a dangerous thing. It's dangerous. Because I think what Mark wants you to focus on this morning is actually this. He wants you to focus on the type of animal that Jesus instructs these men to fetch. So let's do it like this. Let me return once again to the children, to the, to the kids here, okay? Boys and girls, I've given you a worksheet to do, okay? And you've been given an animal to color in. What animal have you been given to color in? What is it? It's a donkey. Now, if, how about this? If people here were were to ask you to describe a donkey, I wonder what you would say. Would you say a donkey is a majestic-looking animal? No, a shake in the head. Would you say the donkey is a big, grand specimen of a beast? No, you're shaking your head. No, you would say the donkey is actually a bit of a silly-looking animal, isn't it? A donkey is a bit of a... Da- Even the noise that a donkey makes is a bit silly, isn't it? What noise does a donkey make? No one's willing to do it. Your minister will embarrass himself. Eat all. There you go. That's what a donkey makes. Okay, so a silly animal. My friends, what we all need to appreciate is that the people of God viewed these animals very, very differently to that. Biblically, scripturally, a donkey, wait for this, a donkey was actually the animal of a king. It was the animal of royalty. Isn't that odd? Like we would think of a grand sort of stallion or a steed or something, wouldn't we? And yet it was a donkey that was the animal of a king. Let me give you some example of this. What about First Kings chapter 1? Now you know the story. King Solomon in all his splendor is about to be enthroned as king. And everyone, you can imagine the pomp and the circumstance, everyone is going up to the coronation ceremony. 
And we are told that all his advisors, they escort Solomon to Gihon. And they're all shouting and singing, long live King Solomon. It gets to the apex of all of this, the big moment. And do you know what we read? They put King Solomon on King David's mule. A donkey. A donkey. A donkey as the king's animal. Do you see the next piece of the jigsaw that Mark is showing you this morning? He's not just saying to you, look, he has paused, Jesus, at the Mount of Olives. He's significant. What is he saying to you? He's saying, look, think of it. Here is a man who is riding this donkey into the capital city itself. What does he say? He's saying this man, Jesus, he's a king. He, Jesus, is a king. Now, if you're visiting this morning, I, I know not where you stand before God. Maybe there are some people in here who are beginning to ask questions of the gospel, beginning to consider for the first time Jesus, and maybe now because of this, you're asking, a king? I mean, what sort of king is Jesus? Well, if you're asking that, then praise God, because he answers your question in the very text itself. Because I wonder this, friends, did you notice the repetition that takes place in Mark chapter 8. Did you notice that Mark here takes the text and he repeats the same idea? And he doesn't just do it once or twice. He does it over and over and over again. So let's do this. and very important to the text. So let's do this together. I will read from verse 2. You follow with me and you see. I'll try and bring out the repetition and the emphasis. But follow from verse 2. Let's see if we get it together. Now remember, we're asking, what sort of king is Jesus? So Jesus said to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt. What's the next word? Tied. On which no one's ever sat. Untie the colt. Bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. He will send it back immediately. They went away and they found a colt. And a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the coat. Aren't you with me? When I say to you, that seems odd. Doesn't it? Like Mark is, is evident. He doesn't need to even mention that, any of it. And yet he is repeating this idea of the tying, the binding of this, of this donkey, the buying of the binding of this colt. Now, do you see what it is that's happening here? First, think back to the first reading when Adrian came up. What was our first reading today? It was Genesis, wasn't it? Genesis chapter 49. Yes, now, what was happening in Genesis chapter 49? Well, let me, let me tell you. The patriarch Jacob, he assembles all of his children, all of his sons before him. And he prophesies about each of the sons. And it gets to his son Judah. And I wonder if you picked up what he said about Judah. He said that from the tribe of Judah, a great king would emerge. God's chosen King, one from whose, remember, from whose hand the, the scepter of power would never be taken. Okay, so he prophesies that out of Judah would come this eternal king. Now this is the point. Listen to me. What was it in Genesis chapter 49 
that Jacob said that eternal king would do. Can I tell you? He said that king would one day come and he would tie, bite, unbind his donkey. Do you, do you see what is happening in Mark chapter 11? Do you see what Mark is showing you here? Do you see what he's saying to you this morning? He's showing you the true identity of Jesus. He's saying to you, this Jesus isn't just spiritually significant. He's not just a king. Mark is saying to you, Jesus is the man from Genesis chapter 49. Jesus is the very lion from the tribe of Judah. He is, he is God's chosen eternal king. And I ask you, isn't that why this donkey is never ever to be ridden before? You know, ask yourself that. Why did the donkey not have to be ridden before? Why? Because it was about to be used in the very service of the Lord God Almighty. Do you see what we're being taught in Mark chapter 11? We read Mark chapter 11 and we learn that God's long, long promised king in the person of Jesus Christ, that king was here. So we learn of Jesus' person. He is God's chosen king. But we also learn here a lesson about Jesus' purpose as well. Jesus' purpose. When I was young and foolish and single, um, every time the Scottish national football team would play a home game in Glasgow, uh, I would make every single effort to try and get to the game. So I would go to all of these home games, the football games in Glasgow. I think, looking back on it, that watching Scotland play football was God's way of sort of preparing me for the disappointments of, of ministry or something uh, like that. Um, but what we do, the group of us that would go to the football matches, we would park quite a distance away from the stadium and we would walk to the ground. And I'm sure quite a few of you have done something like this for a big sporting event before. And so you know what it's like, don't you? Uh, you're walking to the ground with this multitude, this throng, and all people and everyone singing and uh, shouting. And there was no sort of tension or violence. In it. it was just a sort of festive party atmosphere. Everyone's excited on their way to watch Scotland get beaten 4-0 or, or something like like that. Now, I, I, I think we mustn't lose sight of that element of Mark chapter 11. What's the obvious thing for me to say? Jesus is not going up to Jerusalem himself, is he? There is a multitude of people who are with him at this point. And, and remember from last week, why is it that they're going up with Jesus? They're going up to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover feast. Isn't that why they're going up to Jerusalem? And you can see a scene. There's people before Jesus. There's people behind Jesus. There's all this party of jubilation. Isn't that? And what are they doing? They're all casting their cloaks before Jesus in what was a commonly accepted sign of submission. So you've got the scene. We can picture these people coming into Jerusalem. Actually, it is what these people were singing that I want you to focus on. They're not singing Flower of Scotland. They're not singing Scotland the Brave. Look at what they're singing in verse 9. 
and appreciate that they are singing the very same words that you have just sung in Psalm 118. Verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're singing. Now, what's the first word of the phrase? Do you see what it is? The word Hosanna. No doubt you've heard the word Hosanna before. Have you? Are we all clear with, with what it means? Literally, it means save us. We pray. Save us, we pray. Now, do you see the insight then? That we're getting into why Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Think about the scene. Think about what's happening. Here is God's chosen king entering his capital. What's the accompanying praise? Save us, we pray. What's Christ here to do? He is here to deliver. Christ is entering into Jerusalem to conquer, to free his people. He is here to save. But doesn't that raise a question in our minds? Surely it does. Because if he is here into today to save, then how is he going to do it? Is he going to take up arms against Rome? Is he going to stir up a rebellion in the crowd? How is he going to save? Well, think about it like this. You're sitting this morning in St. Botov's without Aldersgate. That's the name of this church. Now, this church building is not just open uh, on a Sunday any longer. It's now been opened during the week, Monday, Friday. And if you come into this building, as some of you have done, if you come in during the week, you will see the same sight. Invariably, you will see the same thing. If you come in through the park entrance and you gaze through the glass at the back into the sanctuary area here, you will either see nothing at all or you will see, most likely, one solitary tourist. Maybe two, but usually one solitary visitor. And they'll be walking around this hall and they'll be inspecting the stained glass and they'll maybe look over the baptismal font or this heretical picture that we've got up here or the inscriptions on the wall and you have one solitary visitor in the quiet in the solitude just looking around inspecting the building and I'm saying to you isn't that so similar in tone to what we have at the very end of this portion of scripture here look at verse 11 with me So all of these people, they enter into Jerusalem with the singing and the excitement. And look what happens. Jesus leaves them and he goes into the temple and he has a look around. I wonder if you have ever noticed that detail in God's word. Isn't it such a vivid picture? Because nighttime, remember they've traveled from Jericho. It's nighttime and this is Jesus and I think he's by himself. He's going around the temple area inspecting the symbolism expecting the courtyard, looking at everything. Aren't you with me in asking of the text, what's he doing? Like after all of this, his first thing as he comes into Jerusalem is to inspect the temple. What is he doing? What is this about? Well, I want you to see this morning that that there is the fulfillment of the most grand and epic and majestic Old Testament prophecy. It's something we don't pay attention to very often. But in Malachi chapter 3, we are told this. God promises in Malachi chapter 3 that one day the Lord God, Yahweh himself, that he would come amongst humanity. And what would he do? 
He promises one day I shall come and I shall inspect my temple. And I will inspect it to see if man is worshipping me aright. So I'm asking, do you see what is happening? As Jesus inspects the temple, do you see what's going on? Not only is that prophecy fulfilled, but Jesus is showing you how it is that he is going to save. Why is he coming to Jerusalem? What has he come to do? Do you see he has come, he tells us, to turn the temple upside down. He's come into Jerusalem this day that through his death and through his resurrection that he would make pure the worship of God. He has come into Jerusalem to to shake the temple's foundations, isn't he? And to tear down the temple veil. You see what's happening? He has come into his capital that he might center all worship of God, not on the temple, but on himself. I wonder if you recognize the splendor and the glory of that little detail. Do you see the purpose with which Christ came into Jerusalem? He had come to be the mediator between God and men. And no wonder then that Zechariah, speaking of this very event, centuries and centuries before, what did he cry out? to the people of God. What does he tell you to do? Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See this day, see your king come to you. How? He comes to you righteous and he comes to you having salvation. Christ Jesus, the king, had come into Jerusalem. Why? He had come to save. So we see something of Jesus' person, God's chosen king. We see something of his purpose. He has come to save, turning the temple upside down. But what did I say at the beginning? I said we would have a a question. We would ask a question of the text, didn't I? Here's the question that really I've wrestled with all week. How much did the crowd know? How much do these people journeying into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, how much did they understand of these symbols and of Jesus' purpose? Do you, do you see the question? You, you see why I'm asking it? Like you, you maybe say to me, you know, yes, they, they understood that he was spiritually significant because they're casting their cloaks before Jesus. But you need to appreciate that see so much of what they're doing there was routine. Do you understand what I mean? Like see all of this sort of partying and the jubilation and the singing of Psalm 118. They would have done it anyway. I mean this is part of what they did going up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They would have done it anyway. So how much of it is just routine from the crowd and how much of it was insight into who Jesus is? Let me answer that question straight away I think genuinely friends that crowds before us today knew very 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 little of who Jesus is and what he had come into Jerusalem to do they didn't get it tell you why think about the temple scene Jesus looking around inspecting the temple 
Are we really saying that this crowd coming into Jerusalem, if they really understood that Jesus was claiming to be a king, if they really understood that he was coming in to save his people, do we think that those that crowd would have left Jesus alone? That they would have come into Jerusalem and just dispersed and just left him to go in? No way! They would have pestered Jesus, would they not? And then what about the later trial that Jesus faces? You know the one. Jesus is facing trial. The Jews are trying to find any evidence at all that Jesus has claimed to be a king. They're looking for any evidence of his claim to, to, to royalty. And what do they say at the trial about this great entry into Jerusalem? What do they say at the trial? They make no mention whatsoever of this great triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Why not? Because the people did not understand that Jesus was claiming to be the divine king. But I think what is most conclusive here is actually what John says in his gospel. So John does what Mark does. John explains this triumphal entry and he draws attention to the donkey. He quotes Zechariah. He gives you all of this detail. And do you know what John goes on to say? John says, not even the disciples understood these events. Not even the disciples got it. Do you see what I'm saying to you? The crowd were excited. They're jubilant. They're having a great time. It's a Passover feast. But they didn't recognize this veiled claim of Messiahship by our Lord. And I'll end like this, okay? I'll end by applying this to you if you are a Christian in here this morning. Ask yourself this question. Why did Jesus bother? All of this stuff, all of the detail of the symbolism, the tying of the donkeys and, and the riding of the donkey and going into the temple. Why does he bother if none of these people understood what was going on? Why does he bother? Do you see the answer? He went through all of this for the future assurance of his church. Like, no, at the time, Peter doesn't recognize it. James doesn't recognize it. John, they don't get it. But after the resurrection... Can you imagine what it would have been like after the resurrection? James maybe says to John, do you remember the tying of the donkey? That was Genesis 49. Do you remember he went into the temple? That was Malachi chapter 3. Jesus goes through this for the later assurance of the church. And the same is true for you in here this morning. Why does Jesus go through all of this? Why does he do it? Because he knew that you today would be in this room. And he knew that you would read this. You would study it. And he wants you to know this morning that it, the gospel, is true. Are you doubting, friend? Christ wants you today to know it is true. The one in whom you have placed your trust for your eternal salvation, he really is the king. He is the Christ. This is real. This is true. He is the Messiah of God. But for the uh, unconverted person in here this morning, I wonder if you see the great parallel that exists between you and the crowd. You, like they, have spent this time today singing praises to God, haven't you? You have actually today sung the very same words as the crowd. 
And you, the unconverted person, guess what? Like the crowd, you today, right now, are in the very presence of Jesus himself. But do you see the catastrophe? You, like the crowd, because of your stubbornness, your unbelief, you, like they, do not see the depths and the glory of the identity and the purpose of Jesus. And I want you to understand, that can change Today, that can change in an instant. If you will only repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, honestly, I tell you today, God can give you eyes to see the glory. He can give you eyes to understand that this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He can give you eyes to see the splendor of Jesus. Do you not want that? Do you not want to see Christ for who he is? Do you not want this day to be saved? If so, what do you do? Oh, I think you know very well from Mark chapter 11 what it is that you have to do. Today, you have to cast your cloak before the Lord. Today, you have to bow in submission and submission to this man. Who is he? You must bow to Jesus, to God's chosen king. Will you not do that this morning? Friends, let's pray.